Some of you may not know, most of you probably do, but some of you may not know, Terry's dad, who we talked about last Sunday from the pulpit, actually did pass away. So uh, just keep Terry and his family and Candy in prayer. The good news is that Terry's dad was a believer, as he had mentioned, so he's in a much better place and glorying in that position right now. Also, last week I talked about the Word of God and the Christian. If you were here, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to to listen to that sermon online. And I mentioned study Bibles. I would recommend if you don't have a good study Bible to get one. And we have not had any in stock. We just got a new supply. So there's some back there. Just to let you know, we don't make any money from those. We sell them for the price that we get them. And we look around to find a, a discounted price so we can give them to you cheaper than you would find them on Amazon or something like that. So we don't gain anything. The only reason we recommend them, the reason we have them, is because we want you to have, have the Word of God in a way that you could understand it, study it, so that you'll grow and be changed by it. So we would encourage you in that way. All right, this morning we are in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, as we're making our way through this awesome book, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. So if you don't have a Bible, why don't you turn there? Well, if you have, I mean... if. <laughs> Wow. If you, please turn in your Bibles to that section of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those blue ones underneath the seats around you and flip it open. Turn to page 940. That'll bring you to our text. 940 in those blue Bibles. I, <clears throat> I titled this message, Taking Away the Security Blanket. Taking Away the Security Blanket. And typically every week I show my wife my outline and my title. I don't show her the message because she likes to be surprised, so she doesn't want to read through it, but she did not like my title. She did not like it, and the reason she doesn't like it is we have a, you know, we've had children, and obviously we have grandsons now, and, and our grandson was recently uh, over at the house and had forgotten, they had forgotten to leave, mom and dad had forgotten to leave his blankie, you know, those, you know what I'm talking about? He has two of them, they're brown, and they are very important to him when he goes to lay down. Very important. And, and we call these our, the security blanket. I, and I don't understand why that is. I hadn't one myself. You know, sometimes it's a doll or it wasn't a doll in my case. It was a blanket. But, and I don't have it anymore, uh, just so you know all that. Get that all out of the way. But it was very important to me, right? When I laid down, I would, as a child, I remember, I still to this day remember it. I would, I would put it to my face and I would nuzzle it. And it had a certain smell to it. Probably not a good one, but one I adored and loved. And it made me feel very comfortable. It gave me some sense of security as a child. I don't know how that works. Well, it would, be, it would be horrific for someone to take away a small child's security blanket, wouldn't it? But in this case, it's the, the greatest thing that Paul can do. As you'll see as we move through our text, Paul is going to take away, in a sense, the security blanket that the Jewish people had. And they need it taken away. I mean, when you think about a security blanket, right, it... It may provide this feeling of security, but can it really protect the child? I mean, the boogeyman, if he does actually come out of the closet, will not be stopped by a, a little holy brown light blanket. It, 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 it really provides no security. It's almost a false sense of security. And as we move through the text, you'll see that, that the Jews themselves had a security blanket and it needed to be ripped away. They needed to see that they were truly vulnerable. That they were truly guilty. So as we, as we move through the text, I hope you'll understand 
the title this morning. As I've said previously, as we've been moving through Romans, the amazing, as has been talked about this morning, the amazing and good news of the gospel that we are justified or made right with God by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that good news, it cannot fully be appreciated or understood without a deep sense, beloved, of our own sinfulness and hopelessness before God. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, and extending all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. We're in the middle of this section right now. Paul's purpose in writing this part of Romans is to demonstrate the sinfulness and the hopelessness of all people before God. All people, both Jew and Gentile. Why? in order to prepare their heart and their mind for the gospel that he will explain in great detail, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21. In the section we are in today, specifically, Paul is narrowing in on, focusing in on, the religious Jew. The one who has not yet trusted in Christ, put his faith in Christ as their Savior. And the Apostle Paul is attempting to show them that while they may have believed that they were already good with God, they were indeed not. They were not. Unfortunately, beloved, many people today feel exactly the same way as these first century Jews. They believe they are already good with God. And maybe not necessarily, probably not, for the same reason, but still they believe that. And nothing could be further from the truth. See, these first century Jews were proud, very proud of their unique identity as the chosen nation of God. And they were especially proud of the fact that God had given them His holy law. His holy law. They were regularly and thoroughly instructed from this law and in this law. And in fact, their entire lives, every part of their lives revolved around this law. Beyond that, they considered themselves superior to all the other nations, to the Gentiles, because they possessed the knowledge and truth of God's law. However, what they failed to understand was that the law that they boasted in, the law that they trusted in, the law that they instructed others in, was the very same law that condemned them before God and made them guilty before God. Beloved, like all people born into this world, they were and are born under sin's power and condemnation. They too were sinners in need of a Savior. And they desperately, desperately needed to understand that their Savior was not the law of God, but the Son of God. 
Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Now listen. Possessing the written law of God, as they did, was clearly an advantage to the Jew over the other nations. There is no doubt about that. They had an advantage. Since by it, they clearly knew God's will for how they were to live. And by it, they were able to discern and to prove what was right and wrong, what was morally excellent, or those things that are pleasing to God, and those things that bring blessing to people if they abide and live by them. So they had an advantage over the other nations. But even so, even so, that advantage in and of itself could never and would never make them right with God. Rather, Paul says this in chapter 3 of Romans, jumping ahead just a little bit, just to remind you, just to give you context, he says this in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, were certainly under the law. And it speaks to them so that every mouth may be stopped. There, no one will come before God and talk about what a great person He is in light of living under the law. How good He is. Why He deserves to be in God's presence or to live with God. Rather, the law shuts their mouth, Paul says. It leaves them silent in light of it. With nothing to say. He goes on to say, in the whole world, this is why the law is given that the whole world may be held accountable to God. You think you're good. Consider yourself in light of the law. For by the works of the law, verse 20, no human being, not a one, will be justified in his sight. Not a one will be made right in his sight by trying to live up to the law according to the law. Why? Because through the law comes what? Knowledge or an awareness of your sin. That's what happens. That's what the law reveals. You think you were doing good? Hold yourself up to the law of God. Your mouth will be shut and you'll realize that you are accountable to Him as a sinner. Paul wants the Jews to see their need, beloved, for Christ. He wants them to understand that the very same law that they had taken refuge in, the very same one that they boasted in and trusted in, is this very same law they break. And the same law that makes them liable to God's judgment just like the Gentiles. Paul wants them to know that the law, beloved, cannot save them. It cannot save them because the law ends up condemning them. Paul says this earlier in chapter 2. Maybe you remember this again for context. Again, I believe here, speaking to the, to the Jew as well. Therefore, you have no excuse. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, just before this section, he lays out the, the, the sin of the Gentile world and says they're all under the wrath of God. He addresses them. And he addresses their need really for Christ by revealing these things. 
And now the Jew would read that and go, that's right, they are wretches, they are, they are lawbreakers, they are disgusting. And then he speaks to the Jew, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Beloved, that is exactly what the Jewish people thought. So Paul is trying to dismantle that belief. Let's take a look at our our text for today, Romans chapter 2. Look in your Bibles, read along with me, beginning in verse 17, we'll read to verse 24. Paul writes these words, But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge in truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Pretty serious words. So this morning, if you have an outline, or you do have an outline, if you have a bulletin inside of your bulletins, you'll find the following so that you can follow along. We're going to examine the Apostle Paul's effort. This is where we're going. We're going to examine his effort to eliminate the sense of security the Jews had concerning God's judgment. And we're going to do that so that we might not make the same mistake and rely on anything, on anything, but Jesus Christ to make us right with God. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So, I know that I don't believe anyway, I'm pretty sure that none of you are Jewish. And I know without a doubt that none of you are first century Jews because we live in the 21st century. And so a good portion of this will be identifying, examining, looking at first century Judaism and talking about that. And so you you might decide I'm going to check out because this does not apply to me. And I understand that, but it does apply to you. It does apply to you. I'm going to apply it to you quickly at the end, but you've got to listen, otherwise the application makes no sense. It makes no sense. So also, I think it would be helpful, it is helpful for you to understand Judaism to some degree, understand Jewish thought, Jewish thinking, Jewish way of life. Uh, just so you know, uh, this is primarily a Jewish book. Okay? This is the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Jesus that we sing about and worship was Jewish. And so it's helpful for us to, and the Bible continually speaks about Jewish things. So we need to, we need to learn those things to, in, in order to rightly understand the Bible in its context. 
So, the three, we're going to look at three things here that identify Paul's effort to eliminate the sense of security. One, Paul identifies what gave the Jews a sense of security and concerning God's judgment. Two, Paul poses questions designed to cause the Jews to reconsider their sense of security. And three, Paul attacks the Jews' sense of security by accusing them of dishonoring God. Simple, just an outline, that's all it is, and just something you can kind of follow along with. So we'll look at the first point. Paul identifies what gave the Jews a sense of security concerning God's judgment. And really that's contained in verses 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 20. And what we have there is, is Paul focusing in on the Jew and the law. The Jew and the law and their special relationship to the law. Now Paul does not say anything in these verses that the Jew would not have said about themselves. Okay, So he's not saying something that they would stand back and go, wait a minute, that's not true of us. They would wholeheartedly agree with everything that Paul says in this section. And Paul's able to, to know what it is that the Jews would believe and agree with because Paul himself was a Jew. He was a Jew. He was a Jew of all Jews. He was previously a Pharisee, a religious leader among the Jews. But what made Paul very different than those he was writing about in this section is that Paul had saving faith in Jesus Christ. You understand? That's the distinction. Paul's writing to the Jews about the Jews. He himself is a Jew, but these Jews had yet to place saving faith in, or have faith in Jesus Christ like Paul did. Now, the Jews were very proud to call or refer to themselves as Jews. Okay? The name has been used to, uh, in a wrong way in our society and in, throughout history to... to be derogatory towards these people. But that term, Jew, was actually a term of, of great pride among the Jewish people, especially in the first century. It was a term that historically distinguished them from all the other nations, from all the other nations, from the pagan Gentiles. Okay? And it identified them specifically as the people of God, as the people of the God of Israel, who the Jews rightly believed to be the one and only true God. You've got to understand historical context. You have the Gentile nations. You have the other nations. They have their gods. But they are false gods. The Jews worshipped the one and only true God. So it was a title of, that gave them great pride. These were the people who relied on the law on the law that God gave to them. He gave it to them. He gave it to them through, we talked about this, through His servant Moses at Mount Sinai. Sometimes it is called the Mosaic Law for that reason. They rested their hopes upon it, this law that their God had given to them. They trusted in it. And listen, this is, this is the point. They came to believe that it was their security against the judgment of God that was to come. And that was a terrible mistake. So they knew God's judgment was coming. They could look out across the land and see all these pagan nations, these Gentiles who rejected the one and only true God. But they thought they were exempt from 
from the judgment. They knew this God and they had His law. They boasted in the one true God who had given them His law and had revealed Himself to them in that very law. And because they were regularly and thoroughly instructed from the law, they knew, they knew the Lord's revealed will for their lives and they were able to discern what was morally excellent, what was truly right and what was truly wrong. Further, since they, the Jews, had in the law, right now I'm just kind of explaining to you 17 through 20. They had in the law God's perfect knowledge and truth in a form that they could understand. They felt very confident to instruct others from it. Those who Paul refers to here in the text as spiritually blind, in the dark, foolish, and immature. So the Jews proudly took on the role of being the teachers and the preachers of God's law. Okay? You understand the idea? You understand some of the concepts here? Proud people. But listen... Just because they possess the law of God, just because they were regularly and thoroughly instructed from Him, and just because they even instructed others in it, should not have made them feel the least bit secure with God. They shouldn't have. Or given them the foolish idea that because of all these privileges, they would be exempt from God's judgment. Rather, they should have learned from it. This is, this is the message they should have got. That their eternal hope should not be based on it. Because ultimately, they would be condemned by that very law since they too had truly failed to live up to it. And that brings me to the second point. And if you missed the first point, it's this. Their, their sense of security was in the fact that they were the people of God who had the law of God, the possessors of God's law, instructors of God's law, instructed in God's law. They rested, they relied upon God's law. And believe because of all that, they would be exempt from the judgment of God. And finally, that brings me to the second point. And by the way, the Jew would have agreed with all of that. First century Jew would have said, that's right. That is right. We are not like those Gentiles. Paul poses questions designed now to cause the Jews to reconsider their sense of security. Really, you guys think... You're going to escape the judgment? Really? You really think you're superior to those Gentiles, those pagan nations? You think all the privileges you have that God has given you make you better than the rest of the world? Is that what you think? And Paul is a master. He just asks these questions just to 
to get them thinking, to probe them, to prick their conscience, if you will. It begins in verse 21. You then who teach others, that's right. We have the law. We know what is morally excellent. We are the instructors to the blind, to the spiritually immature. Okay. You who teach others. Uh, Do you not teach yourself? Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, let me ask you something. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, uh, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, you've got to understand, these are rhetorical questions. Paul's not asking them because he doesn't know. Like, hmm, I don't, I'm just wondering, do you do that? He knows. The answer is in the affirmative, yes and yes and yes. He knows what the answer is. He wants them to come forth with that answer on their own. He wants them to seek their own hearts and think about what's going on. And based on the context of Romans, beloved, I don't believe Paul's purpose here, like some might think, is to, is to scold the Jews for their bad behavior that they would try harder to keep the law that they are telling others to keep. That's, that's not what's going on here. That doesn't fit at all with the context. Paul's not going, you have been very bad Jews and you need to be good Jews. You need to do what you tell others to do. That's not the context. Certainly, we should do what we tell others to do. Certainly, we shouldn't be hypocrites. But that's not Paul's goal here. He's not trying to make the Jews better Jews. More religious Jews, more moral Jews. That's not why he's asking the questions. Rather, he's asking them to shake their confidence. To shake their sense of security by causing them to reflect on their lives and realize that according to the standards of God's law that they rely on, that they boast in, according to that, they themselves don't measure up. They also fall short. They also fall short. And therefore, what Paul says a little later in Romans is confirmed to be true that by the works of the law, we just read it, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And therefore, by the works of the law, no one, beloved, would be able to stand at God's judgment, but rather they will be condemned if all they have is the works of the law. Paul is preparing their hearts for the truth that he will reveal in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Let me just read it to you. He's getting them ready for this great truth where Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, the righteousness that all of us lack, that we don't have, and we desperately need to be made right with God, that righteousness has been manifested, has been shown to us Apart from the law. Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is he talking about? The law and the prophets are the Scriptures. It's a, it's a way of referring to the Scriptures, the Word of God, where the law of God is contained. And the law and the prophets, they tell us about this righteousness that is from God. Well, what is it? Verse 22, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. What is he talking about there? There is no difference between Jew or Gentile here. None. Yes, you may have had an advantage, but that advantage never made you right with God. You need what everyone else needs. You need the righteousness of God. The law only demonstrates how messed up and unrighteous you are. There is no distinction. For all have sinned, both Jew and Gentile, every human being and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified only one way, by His grace, by His undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. As a gift. You don't earn a gift. You can never earn a gift. If you earned it, it's not a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's where it is. It is nowhere else. This is why we preach Christ. This is why we talk about Christ. This is why we lift up Christ because the redemption is in Him and Him alone and no one else. Now going back to our text, some have said that they have a hard time believing that these very religious Jews, that's who Paul's writing to, okay? That's who he's writing about. Religious Jews, those who had the law of God, those who were instructed in the law, those who instructed others in the law of God, right? Went to synagogue, faithful to their church services. People have a hard time believing that these religious Jews Paul was talking to were actually guilty of stealing or committing adultery or robbing temples. I just, you know, they read that and they go, what? I mean, come on. These are religious folks. Religious folks don't go around stealing, committing adultery, breaking into temples. But listen. When you think of stealing, and this is the same mistake, people who read that text and walk away with that understanding make the same mistake we make. When you think of stealing, you need to realize there are many other ways to steal besides mugging someone or breaking into a place and taking their stuff. There are other ways (laughs) to break this law that are not so dramatic, right? So when you think of a thief or someone who steals, maybe, maybe in your mind what immediately comes to mind is the guy who robs the liquor store with with a gun or a knife or something, right? Or the guy that sneaks into people's houses and breaks in the back window and takes their TV and so on and so forth. But beloved, there are more sophisticated ways to be a thief. In our own culture, let me give you some examples. Even respectable people. I say that in quotes. Respectable people. Upright people. Even those people regularly steal from the government when they lie on their tax forms. That's a form of thievery, beloved. When they, when they put stuff on there that they didn't really have as a deduction or they try to hide their income. Business people do this all the time when they take cash and don't report those earnings to the government. That's thievery. That's theft. 
See, not as, not as crazy as the, the guy coming in and holding up the liquor store, right? But nonetheless, still a breaking of God's holy law. People do this all the time. Uh, very common in our society that when someone buys a car, they're supposed to fill out a, a form called a transfer of title with the DMV. And on that form, there's a spot to put the amount that you paid for the car. And the reason you do that is because our wonderful DMV will tax you according to that amount. The higher the amount, the greater the tax. So it's now a common practice when the, the seller gives it to the buyer. He just leaves that blank, the amount, and he lets the buyer do what he wants with that. He fills it in. So he paid 5000 but guess what? He only paid $5 for this car. And the DMV goes, wow, that's a great deal. Yes, it was. Your tax is 10 cents. Thievery. Okay? Well, how about this? Because I don't want to leave anybody out. (laughs) How about when, as employees, you steal from your employer by taking a longer lunch break than you are allowed to have, but don't record it? You go an hour and ten, an hour and twenty. But you put down it was just an hour. What do you think that is? A Benny? Benefit, short for benefit. Like this is what we this is what you do. I mean, I get an extra twenty minutes, I'm entitled to it. Why don't you ask your employer if you're entitled? If he says you're entitled to it, then certainly you are. But why don't you ask him? Just confirm that. See what he says. Or how about when you clock out at five but you really stopped working at three? You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? We get so high and mighty. The Jews were like that too. So high and mighty. Oh, we don't steal. You shall not steal the law of God. Proclaims it. Our holy God has told us this. And it's true. We shouldn't. Oh, really? You who preach, you don't steal? Do you steal? Do you steal? How about enormous amounts of time at work that are spent looking at Facebook? And your employer thinks that you're busy working. There's even devices set up so you can click a button real fast. So it pulls up a spreadsheet, removes the Facebook page. There are even studies done about how much productivity is being lost in the workforce when people have access to the Internet. Shopping. It's not just Facebook. Shopping. Facebook. What do you think that is, beloved? That's stealing. That's what it is. So I... If I can look in our culture, okay, and I could go on and on about all the ways that we rip people off, that we break this law, then I am certain that Paul knew of many, many ways. And when he said this, they knew it too. So he wanted to draw it out of their hearts. Really? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal yourselves? For the Jews, we know that one thing that was common, and God warned against it all the time, is false weights. False weights, what's that about? Well, what they would do is, you know, someone would come in this barter system of trading, so they had a scale, and let's just say the chicken, I'm giving you an example, would, you know, they put the chicken on the scale, and then they had these weights, and based on the weight of the chicken, there would be an exchange of something for the chicken. Okay, so the heavier the chicken, give me an example, or the grain, let's use that one, the more that they should get, right? So they changed their weights up. 
So you thought this was, let's say, a pound weight, but they made it less than a pound, but it looked like a pound weight. That way you had to put more grain on there, and they got a little bit extra and gave you a little less. Oh! Very sophisticated, isn't it? I mean, they didn't hurt anybody. They didn't rob them at gunpoint. They didn't hold them up. It wasn't very violent. Nonetheless, it was thievery. You see what I'm saying? All right. How about concerning adultery? What about that? You don't think the Jews committed adultery? The Jews would, would preach against it, but it didn't necessarily stop them from lusting in their hearts for another, for someone who wasn't their spouse. Remember what Jesus said? You've heard it said in Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, you look upon a woman with lust in your heart for her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've already done it. And even if that is not what Paul is talking about, he could have been talking about this. The Jews knew they couldn't commit adultery. But they were still messed up. Okay, just like the rest of us. So they want something that they shouldn't want. They want another. So they decided that they had the right under the law of God to divorce their women for any reason. For any reason. Some of them believe, not all of them, but some of them believe that. So woman messes up on breakfast. I'm not kidding, guys. I'm not kidding now. She cooks a bad meal. Woman, you are gone. I write you a certificate of divorce. Why do they do that? Because they didn't want someone there to cook them breakfast? No, because they wanted another one. And they knew they couldn't have the other one. Otherwise, they'd, quote, be committing adultery. They would. So they thought, I'll get around it. I'll divorce you. I have the right to do it. They just married another one. And when they got tired of her or they wanted another one, they divorced her too. It was a serial divorce, just one after another. And then the Lord comes into the situation, Jesus, in Matthew 19.9, He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. There's your exception. In other words, she messes around on you. She sins against She commits adultery. Except for that. So if you're committing, if you're divorcing for any other reason and you marry another, you commit adultery. Matthew 19.9. That's what it says there. That's what the Lord said. So every time they did that, they thought they were so slick, thought they were law keepers. Every time they did that, they were law breakers. They were committing adultery. You who say don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You see? Finally, at the end of verse 22, there's Paul's third question about the Jews abhorring or, or hating idols, but then apparently turning around and robbing temples. That's interesting. What's that all about? Well, it just shows another inconsistency in what they said and what they actually did. Listen, the Jews hated idols. They hated idols because God hated idols. Okay? Yeah, I mean, you read the Old Testament, it's loud and clear. God hates idols. He hates idolatry. He hates anything that takes his place. Anything. Uh, people were given worship to all kinds of ridiculous things and calling it God. He wanted them to have nothing to do with these idols, and these statues, if you will, that the, the pagans worshipped in their temples. But guess what? These idols, these little temple, these little uh, statues, they were made of valuable metals like silver and gold and other such things. And so what Paul appears to be suggesting here is that some of the Jews were guilty of actually stealing these idols from the temple to benefit financially from the precious metals they were made of. That's what I think is going on here. So while the Jew may have abhorred idolatry, 
It is wrong to be an idolater. It is wrong to have anything to do with idolatry. Apparently, some didn't mind profiting from them. See? Somehow they got around that. I mean, after all, they're, you know, idols. But we don't worship them, but it's okay if we, we steal them out of other people's temples and then make some money off of them. I, you know, we, I've thought about this. We are, we are our sharpest mentally when we attempt to rationalize our sin. Justify it. Think about it. You, you, you become your smartest all of a sudden when you try to, to come up with excuses for why it's okay that you're doing what you're doing, that your sin is not really sin. And Paul's just saying, guys, seriously, seriously, think about this. Here's the bottom line. The Jews, like everyone else in the world, they're truly messed up people. <laughs> they're messed up people. And as such, they truly needed to hear and believe the gospel. That's what they needed to do. Not try to work harder at keeping the law. That's not Paul's point. It's impossible. The context dictates against it. He's not saying, try harder. He's saying, you have failed. The law will not protect you. Your privileges will not protect you. You may be the chosen people of God. And yes, He gave you His law. But that law condemns you. Paul moves from questions to a challenge, their sense of security, to right now he's, he's just going to make a direct attack. Questions them, now he just speaks right at them. Verse 23, You who boast, look back at the text, in the law, that's the Jew, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Leave that up there for a second. Some of the translations of the Bible, such as the New American Standard Bible or your King James, New King James, they make verse 23 another question. So it goes like this in the NASB. You, have, you who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Okay. Bottom line, it gets to the same place, but I agree with the English Standard Version that we have here today and that I'm reading from and other Bible commentators who believe Paul intended that statement or that sentence as a statement, that it's not a question, and that's why the ESV translates it as a statement. And his statement, in other words, he's moved from questions now to making statement. And his statement is pretty clear, and here it is. You boast in the law, you boast in the law, which really summarizes everything he's just said in verses 17 through 20. You boast in the law, you think the law is going to save you from God's judgment. Think again! For you dishonor God every time you break it. Every time you break it. One translation puts it this way. Next verse. And the New International Reader's Version puts it this way. You brag about the law, but when you break it, you rob God of His honor. You rob Him. And the reality was that their failure to obey it was something that, that not only Paul was aware of, okay, he knew about it, they knew about it too. They may have denied it, and that's what Paul's trying to draw out. But it, it wasn't just the Jewish community, it wasn't just Paul, but whether, rather it was serious enough, their, their violations of the law, their breaking of the law, that even the Gentiles knew about it. 
The Gentiles. You've got to remember, the Jews did not even fellowship, associate with the Gentiles. They were stayed separate from them. They were, the Gentiles were unclean. The Jews were clean. The Gentiles were unrighteous. The Jews thought themselves to be righteous. And yet, their violations of God's law that they boasted in and relied on were bad enough that even the Gentile populations knew about it. That's what Paul says here. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Among them, because of you. They know what's going on. When you see the words there, as it is written, as it is written, it means Paul is, is quoting or referring back to something in the Scriptures or God's Word. Okay, So I, when we started this series, I told you that Paul quotes the Old Testament frequently in the book of Romans. Quotes from it, draws from it. This reference goes back to, commentators believe, Isaiah 52.5. Isaiah 52.5. You could also look at Ezekiel 36, verses 20 and 21 to help you understand what Paul's thinking about when he says, as it is written, and then he, he says, the name of God is blasting among the Gentiles because of you. Let me tell you just a little bit about that. Isaiah records a time when, because of Israel's sin, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people against God, God gave them into the hands of their enemies. Okay? This is something that occurred in the past. And their enemies are the other nations, the, the Gentiles. Okay? And consequently, their captors now, they mocked God. They mocked Him because they thought that He was unable to protect His people from them. But the reason they were even in that position, the nation of Israel, the reason they were handed over to their captors, to, their, to these other nations, to their enemies, was because of their disobedience to God. That's why they got handed over in the first place. Paul is saying that what is happening now is similar to what happened then. Because of your conduct, because of your disobedience, God's name is being blasphemed or insulted or made little of among the Gentiles. Well, why would he say that? Well, the Gentiles, they, they thought that the people would be or act like their God. That was how they reasoned. So you could look at the people and you would know what their God was like by looking at their behavior. <laughs> there should be some truth to that, right? I mean, we say that too. Uh, you, you know a Christian, you know the Christian's God, you should be able to know the Christian's God because the Christian lives differently, the Christian thinks differently, the Christian acts differently, he talks differently, he feels differently. And those are our reflections of his God at work in his or her life. So you want to you wanna know their God? You should be able to know it through the, his people. You should, right? So sometimes, you know, I, we want to tell people, hey, stop telling people you're a Christian because you, you make God look terrible. Maybe you're not even a Christian. It's like, you know, I, I, I have Christian bumper stickers on the back of my car. So I have to think about that, right? Because people see that when I'm driving. But there are a lot of people that really should remove their bumper stickers from the back of their car because they cut you off and they're doing 100 in the fast lane. And it is an embarrassment. 
It is an embarrassment to the God that they say they serve. It's just an embarrassment. It makes people think wrongly of God. They go, that's their God? Really? So they see, they see, Paul's saying they see you and they identify you as the people of God, the one true God, because that's what you say you are. You're the Jews. And they see your awful and sinful behavior and they consequently think very little of your God and they blaspheme His name. They mock His name. So Paul's saying, just as it is written, because of your behavior, because of your disobedience, just like it was in Isaiah, just for the same very reason, now again, among the Gentiles, God's name is being mocked because of you. The Jews were supposed to lead people to God, not away from Him. (laughs) And yet that is exactly what they were doing. Why would I want anything to do with your God? Why would I want anything to do with your God? You steal too. You commit adultery too. You rob our temples. So let me wrap this up with a few quotes and then some personal application for us. We're almost done. I just thought these were helpful to me when I'm taking all these thoughts and trying to just boil them down to something I can walk away with and understand. Uh, One writer, John Piper, commenting on this passage and on this section, he says this, The point here is not to isolate the Jews as uniquely defective. Uh, That's not Paul's point. Point, Paul's not not going the other direction and going, you Jews are worse than everyone. You are totally, you're bad, bad. I mean, the Gentiles are bad, but you're bad. That's not what Paul's doing. The point is that even their possession of God's law, the thing that they thought protected them, made them privileged and would keep them from the judgment of God, it does not exclude them from their need to hear and believe the gospel of Christ. They are under the power of sin. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul is trying to get them to see, just as the rest of the world is. They would have no problem acknowledging that the Gentiles were under the power of sin. The problem was they wouldn't acknowledge it. Paul aims to show that all of us, us, not just them, Piper says, are sinners and in need of salvation that comes through the gospel of Christ alone. Another writer says this, in Paul's own words, they were instructed from the law, verse 18, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, the form of knowledge and truth, verse 20. He, the Jew, made his boast in the law, Verse 23, and yet he broke it. Paul's conclusion, the Jew dare not take refuge in the law because he had broken the law and that same law now condemns him. Beloved, we're not first century Jews, right? We're not. We already talked about that. But that doesn't mean we can't or won't make mistakes similar to theirs And by that I mean putting our salvation hope in something that cannot save us. Many. Listen, you know this. If you've talked to people, if you're a Christian and you've tried to talk to people about Christ and they've given you their reasons for not accepting Christ, then you know what I'm talking about. Many people think they don't need Christ. They refuse to turn to Him. And they are wrong, 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 wrong. And I don't say that so I can say I'm right, right, right. 
I say that with a burden. This wrongness leads to eternal hell. It's not like being wrong on a test. This is a serious wrongness. Some are counting on their supposed goodness to get them to heaven. How many do you know like that? Maybe you're here and you're like that. You're thinking you are okay with God on your own. You've done a pretty good job in your life. That's what the Jews thought. And I say suppose goodness because Paul will go on to say there are none good. There are none. There are none righteous. Get that idea out of your head. It's a lie from Satan himself. And from Hollywood. Some, some believe they're good with God. They base that on the fact that they belong to this or that particular church. Have you talked to anybody like that? Oh, I'm a Methodist. Okay. What's that mean? I mean, so when you get to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You'll say, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. Okay. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm this, I'm that. I go to this particular... Do you know how long this church has been around? That's good. What's that have to do with anything? Belonging to a church doesn't make you right with God. Even if your mama and your daddy and the granddaddy and grandmama and everyone else in your history went to that church and their name's on a plaque somewhere in that church. They got it on the front pew they've been there so long. And you go there too. That doesn't make you right with God, and yet that's what people think. I was born a Christian. That's impossible. You're born a sinner. But I hear people say that all the time. I was, I was born a Christian. I just grew up a Christian. What is, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, I do know what you're talking about, but it's wrong. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. It's wrong, and you think you're okay with God. Or some base their false hope or their sense of security on the fact that God's kindness will certainly keep them from being sent to hell. Oh, God's too kind. He's too loving to ever send me to hell. Beloved, that's not true. Some base their hope on the fact that they've been baptized. Oh, I've been baptized. Ten times. Oh, then you're real good. You've done been cleansed and cleansed over and over again. And I'm sure God will say, well, you are one clean fella. You come right on in. Your sins have been washed away. Beloved, that's just not true. There's only redemption in Jesus Christ. There's only redemption there. Faith in Him. I mean, think about what that says. Jesus Christ dying on a cross. It's not just dying, but suffering the wrath of God. Something you and I will never fully grasp that. That's what makes us right with God. Think about what I say about the value of that when I say, yeah, being dipped in some water made me right with God. Then I say, I guess, Jesus, that was nice and everything. Thanks for doing that, but this is really what makes me right with God. You know, the tub, I, the bathtub I took. I, that's, that did it. I don't know why you went through all the effort. Thanks, but I'm good now. I mean, it just, it misses the mark. All of those things, beloved, may provide the sinner with some sense of security that, uh, you know, I've got my security blanket, but they will all fail in the end to secure the sinner with God. They will all fail. 
And even, I'm closing up, I am. And I know I go late every week, and maybe that's why some of you stopped coming back. I don't know. But come back if you hear this on the thing or whatever you listen to. it. Come back. I'll try to, I'll try to make it shorter. But I, listen, these are important things. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I've got to say these to you. You need to hear them. I need to hear them. Even if you have trusted in Christ alone as your only hope, your one and only Savior, okay? So now I've talked about the person who doesn't trust in Christ. They don't need Him. What about you? What about me who have trusted in Christ? Well, I'm okay. Well, guess what? You also need to keep relying on Him. On Him. You have to keep... You think it happens once and then, then you spend the rest of your life relying on you? No, beloved. No. The Christian life is a life of every single hour. Every moment of every day of reliance upon Jesus Christ and His righteousness and the forgiveness that I have in Him to make me right with God. It is a moment-by-moment reliance and trust in Him, the One to make me right with God. And here's what happens for the Christian. We We start off right, and then we're going along. Woo, look at this. God is doing things in my life. That's a good thing to say because it is God. And you start to see obedience. You start to see the fruits of the Spirit. And then you, you get involved in the church, right? And you're serving in the church. You're doing all these things. And somewhere along the way, you're tempted now to look at those things and begin to rely on them to make you right with God. See? I look at I'm I am good. I, I am. I am. No wonder God saved me. I mean, I stopped cussing. I tell my wife I love her now, once in a while. I, I'm, I'm not ripping my boss off anymore. I can't believe it. And I serve at the church. I serve on four different committees at the church. Wow! And you start relying on that, beloved. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Without Christ, God, give me all that stuff you got. All that fruits of the Spirit in your life, all that stuff, right? All of it. All the service, all that. All your Bible reading, all that stuff. You're so faithful. Okay? Take all that. You give it. And I'll take Christ away from you. I'll take Him away. And you've got nothing! You've got nothing! I would have nothing! I would be nothing without Christ. I would be condemned. I would be condemned. And when you really get that, okay, when you really understand that, then your love for Him, Christ, your gratefulness for Him, your devotion to Him, your desire to serve Him, all of those things, when you really get that, they're magnified. They're exalted. They're blown up in your life. And all of a sudden, you have the motivation that you need to really live for Him. All of a sudden, you want to serve Him, not because you have to, not because you're being told to, not because you have a guilt trip, but because you really want to. You really want to. Because you're constantly relying on Him and you know that if He left you for a moment, if He lets you fall out of His hand, you would immediately stand condemned before God. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I just pray that you would do the work that only you can do. I can't do it, but you do it. You do it perfectly. You do it powerfully. You do it through your spirit and through your word. As people hear it, it's applied to their hearts. They begin to understand it and they believe it. And Father, I pray as I do every week that that would happen this week as well. Father, work in our hearts. If there be any here that not relying or are not relying solely upon Christ's sacrificial work on the behalf of the sinner, if they're not relying on that, Father, may they see that. May they also see what they're what they are relying on and realize that can never save them. It will never make them right with you, Father. May they see that. May they flee to Christ in faith, believing that He has died for their sins, that He provides the forgiveness that they need, and He has accomplished that perfect righteous life that they never could and never will. And He did it all for them that they might be credited with His very righteousness and made acceptable to You, Father. Might they believe that? And Lord, as Tim was saying this morning, the Gospel is not just for the unbeliever. The Gospel is absolutely and most importantly for the believer. May we too continue moment by moment to rely upon the truths of the Gospel. Apart from Christ, we stand condemned. And whenever we are tempted to turn our eyes away from Him and put it on the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, they're not even our fruits, Father, but we like to take credit for them, how ridiculous we are. When we we try to take credit for the very fruits that are your work in our lives, or our service, or whatever else it is, the good things that you do. Father, may we not do that. May we repent of that. And may we put our eyes right back where they belong. And when we do that, might we find in that true love and devotion just pouring, flowing up out of our hearts. And that is what will drive us to serve you and live lives that honor you. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.